We're looking at figurative or metaphorical language. And as you probably have already noted and seen, the Bible is full of metaphorical language. So when we speak of interpreting literal, literally, we don't mean that you omit or deny the existence of figures of speech or metaphors or metaphorical language. But what we mean is that you translate them literally in the sense that you recognize the characteristics, the uh, conventions, the particular meanings of the individual figures of speech. So we've looked at some of them. And by the way, this is not a complete list. I'll refer you to uh, probably the most extensive groupings of figures is that book by Bullinger, E.W. Bullinger. So we've looked at symbols, started with that. We've looked at comparisons, we've looked at substitutions or figures of speech that utilize the substituting of one word for another or two words for one idea. Let's consider omissions as a category. Omissions involve the omission, obviously, of words or phrases. The common omission would be ellipsis. Ellipsis. This is an omission of a word that must be supplied to complete the sentence grammatically. So a, a sentence, and oftentimes you don't pick it up because the translators sometimes and oftentimes include whatever was omitted. But an example of ellipsis would be Second uh, Timothy 4.18. This is at the very end of the book, and at the very end of verse 18 as well. It's it uh, The translation is, To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. But the word be or the verb is omitted. There's no verb there. Literally, it would be to him the glory forever and ever. Amen. But the New American Standard inserts what was omitted in the Greek text. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you see this not real frequently, but occasionally you'll find it in some of the Greek sentences. Now, structurally, some Greek sentences and some Hebrew sentences do not require when it's so obvious what the verb is, and usually it's to be, or a verb to be, the the verb will oftentimes be omitted when it's so obvious. This occurs both in Hebrew and in Greek. Another example that does not involve just the grammatical structure, but uh, for example, sometimes in uh, in the New Testament, there's a reference made to the twelve apostles, and they are referred to simply as the twelve because they're so clear from the context and so commonly referred to in the first century that they were oftentimes just referred to as the twelve. And everyone within the church knew that uh, the twelve referred to the twelve apostles. That'd be ellipsis. If you want an example of it, it's 1 Corinthians 15.5 where it refers to the twelve by Paul. And I think that happens in the book of Acts as well. Another example of ellipsis is rhetorical questions 
where a question is asked, but the answer is not required. It's rhetorical. A rhetorical question is often asked in order to give the idea in the, the reader's mind an implication of some sort. Consider the implication of the answer. So there are rhetorical questions. Those are the two most frequent types of metaphorical usages that are utilizing omission. We have symbols, we have comparisons, we have the category of substitutions, the category of omissions, we also have a category of overstatement. And we do this in our culture as well, and literature. Overstatement. By the way, a lot of this comes out of Zook's text. So if you have Zook's book, he has a very good section on figures of speech. Some examples of overstatement, hyperbole, hyperbole, where you have exaggeration. Now, this is not just exaggeration in the sense of a tendency by some people. Some people just exaggerate. (laughs) This is a figure of speech, and it's uh, recognized as a figure of speech. It's called hyperbole where you're doing it for a particular purpose, is for an emphasis. And what hyperbole is, is an idea or an event that's stated in an exaggerated manner in order to indicate its importance. It's a deliberate exaggeration where more is said than literally meant. And it's often for emphasis. If you're a parent, you probably told your kids, I told you that a million times. Well, is somebody counting? In other words, this is uh, this is one million and one now. No, you're you're using exaggeration because you want to get the point across. You know, this is not the first time you've been told this. I, you know, I've been emphasizing this over and over to you, and you say I've said this a million times. That's hyperbole, and the kid usually gets the point. <clears throat> or we might say I worked until I dropped. Well. Literally, no. In other words, you didn't fall to the floor, but you just worked very, very intensely, very hard. So we use hyperbole. The Bible uses it, and in fact, Jesus used hyperbole. What will it profit, in Matthew sixteen twenty six? what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Not even Bill Gates has wealth that amounts to the whole world. And certainly no one in the first century. That was Matthew 16, 26. Man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. Or Jesus again in Matthew 23, 24. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Jesus is using hyperbole. In their drinks, they didn't strain out a gnat and then just literally swallow a camel. It's hyperbole. In the Old Testament, Psalm uh, 6, 6, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. You can imagine in your mind uh, this psalmist weeping and crying so much that his bed is floating, it's swimming, and his couch is so drenched 
that it's dissolving. That's exaggeration or hyperbole. We use irony today. We use irony and sarcasm. There's examples in the Bible. What we mean by irony, it's an expression which is different from and often the opposite of the intended meaning. Sometimes we'll say the very opposite of what we mean if we're using irony. And oftentimes it's a kind of ridicule that is uh, used as a way of complaining, as a complaint. Uh, We use irony and sarcasm sometimes interchangeably in our culture. Irony may be a more subtle form of ridicule. Sarcasm is heavier in tone, it's, it's more caustic, and oftentimes when sarcasm is used, the intention is to, to hurt or to wound someone. Just a few examples of irony in Scripture. A vivid one is in 1 Kings 18, particularly in verse 27. The context of this passage is the confrontation of the prophets of Baal by Elijah in the Old Testament, where he sets up the the test, basically, where a sacrifice will be offered and fire will be called down from heaven, etc. And in that passage, they set up the altar and the pagan gods are not able to do what is specified in the deal there. And Elijah says, And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he's a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside or on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. goes on and on in the passage, but uh, do you pick up the, at least the, irony and perhaps even sarcasm there. He's accusing their gods of not being able to hear, so he tells them to call with a loud voice, for he is a god, he says. Maybe he's too busy, maybe he's not omnipotent, he's too busy, he's occupied, or maybe he's gone on a trip, he's not omnipresent. It's filled with sarcasm. So there's an example of sarcasm and or at least, irony. Also, in uh, the New Testament, even Jesus used irony in Mark 7, 9, in another confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. Passage says, he was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition." In other words, you nicely set aside the commandment. I think that's, he means the very opposite. That's irony. Passage by Paul, if you don't pick up the sarcasm in 1 Corinthians 4, 8, I think you can come up with a totally different understanding of the meaning of that whole paragraph, that whole passage. And I think what he's doing is he's using irony. 1 Corinthians 4, 8. And he's talking to the Corinthians and he says, You are filled. You are already become rich. You have become kings without us. 
I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. In other words, he's contrasting the low state of he and his fellow apostles with the boasting and the puffed up idea that the Corinthians have, and he's kind of playing on that and ironically saying, you become rich, you become kings. I wish we were at such a high status as you are so that we might reign with you. And then in verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Do you see the irony there, the sarcasm? He's kind of putting them up in terms of their own thinking and diminishing the apostles as if they were the scum, when in reality, what he's communicating here is the very, very opposite. So that's irony. So we see it not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, and obviously we use it in our culture as well, so it's easy to identify. We also have inconsistency. That's the next category. So we've looked at overstatement or understatement. The sixth category involves inconsistency. And there are two categories that we can look at under inconsistency. First of all, there's what's called paradox. Paradox is a seeming contradiction or an absurdity, but in reality is expressing a possible truth. That's the Random House Dictionary definition of paradox. And it's not a contradiction, but it gives the appearance of a contradiction, the appearance of something the opposite of what is normally understood. We use paradoxes in our culture, but so does Scripture. Mark 8.35 is a good example. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels shall save it. That's an, an inconsistency. That seems to be something that the, you would expect the opposite. That's because it's paradoxical. You want to save your life? How do you save your life? By losing your life. Well, it's true. The paradox is in that when you essentially give yourself up for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his kingdom, and you sacrificially lay your life on the line, essentially losing your life, that is where you find the most fulfillment, because the Lord will in fact bless you and will in fact sustain you, so you will gain your life. So whoever wants to save his life must lose it in this sense. So the idea is paradoxical. The idea of finding fulfillment as a result of losing your life. Also, the concept of freedom in the New Testament is somewhat paradoxical because true freedom is found in making yourself more and more a slave. Freedom is found in being a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's paradoxical. 
And yet that is a truth that Scripture teaches. The very opposite of what you might think from the essential meaning of the words is the truth that's being conveyed. A second type of figures of speech using inconsistency are oxymorons. And again, we use oxymorons. We speak of a silence that is deafening. That's an oxymoron. Or we speak of an open secret. That's an oxymoron in our vernacular speaking. But we also see that the scriptures can use, we also see that the scriptures can use oxymoron as well. Let me just give you one example. That's Romans 12, 1, where Paul begins his entire practical section with this exhortation. And I'll just read the part that is an oxymoron. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. What's a sacrifice? And you remember Paul is speaking to a culture where there were a lot of Jewish people and even Gentiles understood the Jewish sacrificial system. And in that system, a sacrifice involved a dead animal that was laid on an altar. And what Paul is saying, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So this is a living certainly a set-apart or holy sacrifice, and he's calling on the believer to present their bodies like the Jews presented an animal, except this is a living sacrifice. So it's an oxymoron. And I think that's probably one of the best examples in the New Testament. Well, that's figurative language. We've looked at symbols. We've looked at figures that involve comparisons. We've looked at substitutions. We've looked at figures that involve omissions. We've looked at overstatement. And finally, we've looked at inconsistencies. And there are others, but these are probably some of the most obvious and the clearest ones and the easiest to observe in the scriptures. And it will establish the idea that the grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation does not deny the existence of figures of speech, but in fact acknowledges them, but we interpret them literally in the sense that we attempt at every point to see what the author, the original author, intended to communicate by utilizing these figures of speech. The next principle, another essential principle, is the literary principle. Stated simply, take literary form into consideration. It's important that you observe literary form. What is literary form? Literature is an art form. And like other artists, artists convey more than just objective facts and truths. An author conveys things through the particular art form that he chooses. We can use a painting, for example. Painters use different kinds of paintings. They they can use 
watercolor. They can use oils. They can use pencil. So there's a variety of means of conveying that art form. So also literature is an interpretive presentation or expression in an artistic form. Literature not only includes just the words and the facts and the truths, but it includes structure, it includes form, it includes style, that different writers use different styles, and it also can utilize different literary form, or we also call that genre. That's the kind of expression, the way or the means by which the author utilizes to convey those ideas, those truths, those, those facts. This is also an essential principle. It's extremely important to consider what type of literature is under consideration. So the literary principle described is take literary form into consideration in interpretation. What is the genre? You'll treat poetic literature different from epistolary, and epistolary different from historical material, historical material different from prophetic. Now, there'll be some books that might combine genres. For example, Isaiah is predominantly prophetic, but there are some historical portions or sections in Isaiah as well. You might even find poetry within narrative material. For example, the book of Genesis utilizes poetry in the creation narratives, uh, Genesis chapter 2. Much of the prophets utilize the genre of poetry. It's, so it's not only prophetic, but poetry is utilized to convey the ideas that the author is communicating. Now we'll look at literary form in more detail. In fact, the end of our class we will consider special hermeneutics. Special hermeneutics deals with different genre, different literary form, and we'll expand these and go into far more detail in terms of the characteristics and things to look for in these different areas. But for now, just at this point, uh, to realize more the extent of this literary principle, let's quickly go over some of the main literary form that you'll find in Scripture. First of all, we have discursive material. Now, this is a broad category. It is also described as logical discourse or discursive. These types of material are more didactic. They involve more teaching elements. And the examples of some of these, for example, the, the sermons of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Gospels, those would be considered discursive. And actually, we even call them discourses. We call it the upper room discourse or the Olivet discourse. Now, we call the Sermon on the Mount a sermon, but it would be of the same kind. It's discursive. Probably the broadest category, which is a literary form in itself, and I'll give you a lot of detail on it, we describe as epistolary. And that includes the epistles of the New Testament that have a character all of their own and their own characteristics. So we'll look at that and we'll look at the epistles as a unique literary form of its own, but 
we could say up front that it would fall under the broader category of discourse. Another type of literary form or genre we describe as narrative. Narrative material is specific time-space events that has characters or participants. It's essentially the telling of history or the recounting of events in story form. Now, a large portion of scripture, in fact, the majority genre of all of scripture is narrative. And again, it has its particular characteristics, and you want to keep them in mind in interpreting. So we'll look at narrative. We'll look at poetic material, thirdly. Poetic material involves communication using vivid and, in terms of Hebrew poetry, parallel language. It has some rhythm to it, but it's not as rhythmic as, let's say, English poetry. We'll make those distinctions when we talk about poetry. It utilizes language that elicits and appeals to the emotions. So we'll see that. There's also what is called parabolic literature. Most of the parables we find in the New Testament, but there are parables in the Old Testament. Nathan, the prophet, utilizes a parable in confronting King David for his sin with Bathsheba. But most of the parabolic material are the parables of Jesus in the Gospels. That is a distinct and unique literary form, and it has its own characteristics. Number five, we also have prophetic material. And when we speak of prophetic material, it not only includes that that is clearly predictive, but prophetic material also includes material that is forth-telling. In other words, it, it, it deals with the immediate audience that the prophet was addressing. It does not necessarily always look far into the future as we generally think of prophetic material. So it has its characteristics. And there's different kinds of prophetic material. We'll go into some of the different types of prophetic material when we look at it in special hermeneutics. And there are other types, minor forms. Some examples would be Gospels, four Gospels. Many consider a unique literary form in themselves. There's legal material. Particularly in the Pentateuch, you find a lot of legal material. Leviticus, almost entirely, is legal. The portions of the book of Exodus dealing with the Mosaic Law, those are legal. And you have specific laws, and it, it, it has its own unique forms as well. Some portions of the book of Deuteronomy, legal material. So these are others. Apocalyptic, that's a subform of prophetic. It has its own unique characteristics beyond the normal prophetic elements. It has some other characteristics as well. So we'll look at these in more detail. That's the literary principle. Take literary form into consideration in interpreting. So those are our six essential principles. Number one, we have the linguistic principle. We spent over an hour looking at it. We talked about the contextual principle. Context is the final determiner of meaning, so extremely important. 
The historical principle, historical setting of passages contributes to meaning. Fourthly, the cultural principle, the cultural setting of a passage contributes to meaning. Fifthly, the metaphorical principle, which acknowledges the existence of symbols, metaphorical language, non-literal material. That's stated simply, interpret according to the appropriate metaphorical conventions. So we acknowledge that they exist. In fact, they're very frequent in Scripture. And now, finally, we've looked at the literary principle. Next, there are also, not as important as these essential principles, but all the same in some situations are very important. So I call them the important principles. And some of these are just uh, common sense. Some of them are, uh, you might even say, almost obvious. Why do you have to even talk about them? Uh, Well, there's a good reason. Usually it has a historical background behind it. And we will begin with what is described as the logical principle. Logical principle utilizes the basic principles of logic and communication. Just the way we normally attempt to communicate with one another. We, we attempt to be as logical as we can. We don't want to confuse our listener. So we try to set things sometimes in order, if that is best. Sometimes with good logic. If one thing follows another thing, then we logically sequence one thought after another. So we ask questions such as the following. How is this logically structured? How how do these ideas fit together? And when we talk about communication, we try to do that to try to be understood. So that's what the biblical authors are attempting to do. In the book of Romans, Paul has structured his material in a logical way. Where this is very important is the entire book of Romans. Paul is developing his theology and he moves from point to point, very logically, very logically and in order. And he builds upon it. He first develops the concept of the lostness of man in a a fairly large section of the book of Romans, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if man is lost, then he is in desperate need for justification. So next, he deals with the issue of justification from God's viewpoint, from God's perspective. And essentially, he builds and he builds and he builds, but he's essentially communicating that justification is by faith and faith alone apart from works. And he continues to build. After he deals with justification, then he deals with what does that imply in terms of those that have been justified. So he deals with the concept of sanctification, beginning in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And once he's developed this concept of sanctification and justification and condemnation, those three ideas, now he deals in chapters 9, 10, and 11 very logically, well, what is that, how does that pertain to the nation of Israel, a major issue in the first century? And now he deals with how that pertains to them. In the book of Romans, Paul has structured his material in a logical way. The next section, the final section of the book of Romans, he deals with a practical section, starting in chapter 12. And obviously he begins with, therefore, because he's following sequentially in terms of his thought patterns. 
Now, as a result of all of the theology that he's laid out in the first 11 chapters, how should that impact the practical life of the believer? And that's essentially the topic of chapters 12 through the end of the book. So there's a lot of theology in the book of Romans, but it's all structured, one concept building upon another, till you get to the end of the book where he has completed not only the theology, he completes how it should impact daily life in the life of every every believer. He structures his material one thought after another, one sequence of ideas following another sequence of ideas, one thought after another. But the book of Romans, if understood correctly, reveals to us one of the most profound books of all of Scripture. And it's all based on logical sequence. The supernatural principle could be stated, interpret Scripture as a divine book. When we view Scripture as a divine book, we recognize its full authority. We acknowledge that it claims for itself inspiration and inerrancy. And thus... It uh, points to the full authority of God himself. So it's a divine book. Now this seems almost obvious to you and I, because we have the foundation of believing in inspiration and inerrancy. So it seems logical. It seems like it makes sense. We might ask, well, why even formulate such a principle? But there's a whole hermeneutic that denies this principle. Liberalism would deny this principle altogether. Liberalism sees the Bible as simply as a human book. It denies the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. That's the reason this principle is is an important principle. It refutes basically a basic thought of liberal theology. Ninth, the clarity of Scripture principle could be stated, Scripture was intended to be understood. Now, you might say, well, why do we have to have that principle? (laughs) Seems pretty obvious, right? Scripture was intended to be understood. Yeah, obviously. This arose uh, probably as a result of the Protestant Reformation because in that historical context, before the Reformers, people did not have access to the Bible. People depended upon church leaders and the church itself. The official position of Roman Catholicism was that the church itself was the interpreter of Scripture. And it did not leave the interpretation or even the reading of Scripture to the ordinary believer in the pews. You had to access truth through the leadership. You had to go to a leader, a priest, or a bishop, or some leader in the hierarchy of the church. A major shift in the Reformation was the process of making the Bible readily available to the ordinary believer. This is one of the major features and the major reason why the Reformation took off. People began to read the scriptures for themselves. And this principle came into play, that Ordinary believers are able to understand Scripture. They do not need the interpretation of leaders or the church. They're in a position, by virtue of having the Holy Spirit, 
able to be able to interpret the scriptures for themselves. Luther was one that was a big proponent of this principle, and he made the scriptures available to the people. He felt like individuals, and we would agree, individuals could come to the scriptures with the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit and read the sentences and be able to understand them. Maybe not everything, but even the church leaders do not understand everything as well. And I'm referring to both Protestant and Roman Catholic. So scripture was intended to be understood. Our tenth principle, called progressive revelation principle, stated simply, God has revealed his mind over time. God has revealed his mind over time. This principle observes the unfolding of God's revelation in time. We see a development of theology as God reveals more and more. We see an unfolding of his plan and of his program. We see the beginnings of it very early in the book of Genesis in seed form, but we don't see the full-blown development of it until we actually get through the entire New Testament. So there's a progress of revelation where God has unfolded all of these areas of theology, his plan, and his program. Now, this is not in an evolutionary sense. It's not that earlier portions are imperfect and later ones are more perfect or more complete. It's not that the earlier portions are in error and later portions of Scripture are more truthful or more inspired. It's not that the Old Testament is less inspired than the New Testament. It's just that God has, over the centuries, planned to unfold what he wants the reader to understand. So there's a progress, there's a there's a movement, where you have in seed form in Genesis what is more fully developed later on in, in Scripture. Now, you see in Genesis, you you recognize that the book of Genesis is written by Moses, but even Moses, in his time, probably had access to documents that preceded his writing. The structure of the book of Genesis seems to reflect that in the Toledoths, where we probably have revelation that was passed down even from as early as Adam and certainly through Noah and on to descendants. And Moses takes that and compiles that. Now, I would not say that those documents themselves were necessarily inspired, but what Moses gathers and puts together as the final product of Genesis, that would be the inspired text. That's what God moved Moses to gather together, and that's the authoritative text. And then we come to another era, the Mosaic era. Moses compiles that information and puts together other information that was available. But all of that is progressive. In other words, we have revelation that is in seed form in the book of Genesis, and then it is expanded as we move through Scripture, and then you have these eras, or what we would call dispensations, like when Moses arrived, God revealed the law, the written law or the legal portion of Scripture did not come about until the time of Moses when God chose to reveal it then. Now, we look back and we see it as part of the Bible, but historically, all of this developed. 
Then we have we see the rise and development of the nation of Israel that took time. And many of the books of the Old Testament, the early books, deal with the formation of the nation of Israel. And once the nation was established as a nation among nations, now we see within that development of other ideas. Uh, wisdom literature, for example. So we have the books that we describe as wisdom literature were developed after, so they come about later. Were written generally around the time of David, but not entirely. There's some early Psalms and there's some later Psalms. And Solomon came into play with some of the wisdom literature as well. So God revealed these things over a period of time. Then we have uh, prophetic material that generally came later in the Old Testament. And the whole New Testament revealed further the mind of God until we ultimately get to the book of Revelation. So there's a progress of Revelation. So you have this unfolding of God's plan, of God's will, and in fact, an unfolding of world history and how God is sovereign over it all. Now this comes into play when you exegete a passage in the Old Testament. Be careful... And I try to be careful in some of the specifics. In fact, we should be careful in all of it. Now, this principle comes into play when we attempt to interpret Old Testament passages. We need to be careful not to read in to Old Testament passage New Testament theology. An example of how this is done, and I think mistakenly, is oftentimes theologians will read the church into the Old Testament passages. They will see Israel as the Old Testament church, and or they will read into the New Testament the church as the New Testament Israel. I think that's a, a failure to take into account this progress of revelation. There's a strong distinction between Israel and the church. They're very, very different. And God has a plan for both of them. And that plan differs. It's not the same plan. Now, it comes together in the end, but I think there are strong distinctions between the two. And I think it's a violation of this principle here. So don't try to find the church in the Old Testament because I think it is a New Testament concept. So don't read in issues or theology that pertains to the church, don't read that in to issues of the nation of Israel. A striking example of that, or at least one of them, we read in the life of Saul, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit and appears to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but then the Holy Spirit leaves him. And even David himself prays after his sin with Bathsheba in one of the Psalms, one of the Part of the prayer is that the Spirit not depart from him or not leave him. Now again, theologically, this concept of the Holy Spirit leaving, that's an Old Testament concept. When we come to the book of Acts in the New Testament, we have a different relationship to the Holy Spirit. We have a permanent indwelling presence where the Holy Spirit never leaves the believer. The believer may walk in sin, but the Holy Spirit does not depart. That is different from the experience that Saul had in the Old Testament. The New Testament uh, seems to assure us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit 
and that the Holy Spirit does not depart us. So you have two different concepts there. One is an Old Testament and one is a New Testament. One pertains to the church, one pertains to Israel and the participants in the nation of Israel. So God is revealing his mind gradually, gradually unfolding his theology as he moves. Another idea that I think is predominantly New Testament, not absent from the Old Testament, like the church is, but not as clear is the whole doctrine of the Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity is very fundamental and very important, but yet in the Old Testament is not as clear and is not as explicit. It's the New Testament that makes clear the doctrine. We would not have a doctrine apart from the theology of the New Testament. So it's a mistake to read too much of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament recognizing that uh, the revelation still awaits uh, progressive revelation concerning that doctrine. This principle highlights one of the major distinctions between dispensational theology and what is known as covenant theology. Dispensational theology would emphasize this progress of revelation principle. Covenant theologians... They wouldn't deny this principle, but they would not emphasize it as much as dispensationalists. There's what's called the unity of scripture principle. Unity of scripture principle. You've probably heard very commonly, use scripture to interpret scripture. Use scripture to interpret scripture. This is called the unity of scripture principle. And the idea with this is that there is a unity and there should not be inconsistencies. So if one passage is clear, you can oftentimes use that clear passage to interpret maybe a more obscure or passages not as clear. And this is what you want to do. In, interpret obscure or secondary passages in light of the clear and primary passages. You might find in uh, some passages some central doctrinal passages. An example of that, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the central passage on the doctrine of the resurrection. And when you find and when you come across those kinds of passages, you give priority to those kinds of passages over other passages that might just in passing refer to the resurrection or might simply give some additional detail, but not the full development as you find in 1 Corinthians 15. So that's what we mean. Uh, one passage will help you to understand other passages. Or just simply, the Scriptures many times interprets itself. The Scriptures often just directly interpret themselves. When Jesus began speaking in parables... The disciples not only asked him, why do you speak in parables? But they also asked him, uh, what do you mean? What's, what's the meaning of these parables? And in that same context, he goes about and interprets a few of the parables. And then once he interprets them, the disciples seem to get the idea, and later on he doesn't interpret them anymore. So here you have the interpretation of, in this case, parables. So you use Scripture to interpret Scripture. You also use, oftentimes, Scripture to 
not only interpret scripture, but to, to formulate your theology. All theology should be exegetically based. A problem, oftentimes, is that you form your theology and now you interpret the passage in light of that theology. You ought to let the scriptures interpret scripture. And always, if need be, revise your theology. We have the analogy of scripture principle. Analogy of scripture principle. This is another old historical principle. Similar to what we just stated, but uh, it's distinct and has its own idea. This analogy of scripture principle can be stated. No interpretation of a passage can contradict the rest of scripture. So it's a little bit more focused than the unity of scripture principle. So no passage, when rightly interpreted, will contradict the rest of scripture. So when you encounter that in your exegesis, then you have to rethink. The Bible is consistent. The Bible is a unity, coherent, coherent whole. There is a fundamental, there are themes of scripture, there are there are certainly theological concepts that run through the Bible. So if you have a passage that seems to be contradictory to these major themes, these major ideas, these major theological ideas, then you may have misinterpreted the passage. An example of that, theologically, when you're talking about we look at passages in terms of consistency and lack of contradiction, Again, using the book of Romans as an example, when Paul speaks of justification by faith, what does that mean in terms of what James is talking about in his letter when he's talking about justification not by faith alone, but justification by works? How do those two concepts fit together? Somehow have to harmonize Paul with James or James with Paul and they're there will not be a contradiction between those two concepts. As you interpret them, then you begin to think in terms of how do these passages fit together, not how does one passage undermine or contradict the other passage. Now, that not only pertains to individual passages, but uh, theology in general. For example, the doctrine of God's immutability. There are many passages that make it clear that God is immutable or unchanging. In their context, they seem to be very clear that conveys this idea that God does not change. He's immutable. And yet, when you read other passages, it appears there's a whole set of other passages that seem to indicate that God changes his mind. For example, Genesis chapter 6, preceding the Genesis flood, it appears that God changed his mind concerning mankind. Concerning the Ninevites and Jonah, God told Jonah he would uh, bring judgment upon the Ninevites. And then God changed his mind. And there are several passages like this. So how do you harmonize what seems to be seeming contradictions and several passages like these in terms of the immutability of God. Well, this principle encourages you to seek harmony amongst those kinds of passages. So these are the important principles. There's the logical principle, supernatural principle, clarity of scripture principle, progress of revelation, 
unity of Scripture principle, the analogy of Scripture principle. There's also what we might describe as a didactic principle that can be stated, interpret obscure passages in light of clear passages. That's similar to the unity of Scripture principle as well. Interpret obscure passages in light of clear passages. It's sometimes separated out as distinct in some of your hermeneutical books. It also involves figurative passages that are predominantly metaphorical or figurative. So you want to interpret figurative passages in light of non-figurative passages or literal passages. An example that comes to, to mind on that one, not so much a passage, but I think a theological concept in, let's see, is it John, John 15, when Jesus is speaking of, he's using metaphorical language when he compares the believer to the vine. He is the true vine. The believer, believers are the branches. Now, he makes some statements in there concerning the burning up of some of the branches in that illustration, you could say, that he uses. And in fact, Arminians come to the conclusion that, and they use that as support for the idea that you can lose your salvation. That's one of the passages. Well, for one, that's not a clearly theological passage. It's an illustration. And for two, Jesus is, is using the, this illustration and he's using the imagery, so it's somewhat metaphorical. So what you should do is take passages like uh, passages out of the book of Romans or other clear theological statements, those didactic passages or those teaching passages to interpret these passages that are, that are not as clear, that are more, in that case, metaphorical. And if you do that, then uh, you can harmonize that with those other passages. And in that harmonization, you come to the conclusion that the, the believer can't lose their salvation. So here you have a difference between uh, theological approaches that sometimes drive the interpretation. So that's the didactic. Finite principle. You interpret Scripture being aware of mystery in Scripture. There is a certain amount of mystery. Uh, what this recognizes is you and I are finite interpreters, and we're dealing with the infinite mind of our Creator, of our God, and not everything will be totally crystal clear to us. There are some passages that we probably in this age will never be able to understand fully. We might have a little bit of an understanding, but we there's a certain amount of mystery or lack of data on our part. You can't always understand the full extent of every single passage. What uh, comes to mind is Genesis 6, when it speaks of the, the, the sons of God and the daughters of men, and uh, this intermarriage that takes place. It's not crystal clear what's going on there. This is pre-flood. This is before the flood. So there's some other issues involved and we probably don't have all the data that we need to, to be conclusive. So as a result, there are at least three major viewpoints on what's going on there and who the sons of God are and who the daughters of men are. Three 
very distinct and very different interpretations of that passage. And it's not for lack of intellect or scholarship or devotion or spirituality in terms of the three three viewpoints because they're represented by equally scholarly individuals, equally spiritual, equally conservative representatives where you can't necessarily any flaws in their thinking other than the fact that there's not enough data to be conclusive in that passage. So there's a certain amount of mystery. Even the fundamental doctrine of the Trinity, do we fully understand that? We have formulated a statement, uh, but I have not read of a single theologian that would admit that he understands it in a very clear and well, certainly a definite way. I, I mean, I think we should be definite on it, and that's a fundamental doctrine. But I'm not sure my mind can put together how God being one can exist in three persons. I, I'm not sure how I can put that together in my mind. It's also difficult, the uh, the issue of God's sovereignty and how human responsibility somehow must fit together because both of them seem to be equally supported in Scripture. But how to put it all together, I'm not sure we are capable of doing that because we are finite and we're dealing with eternal and spiritual issues so interpret with that awareness this should bring humility to us this should uh, bring a sense of dependence upon the holy spirit there's also in scripture and we'll, we'll talk some more about this when we get to exegesis there are levels of confidence that we can have in the conclusions that we come to and is based on how much information the, the passage itself and the rest of Scripture supply to us. So there are some issues that we should be willing to go to the stake for and die as martyrs, because we don't want to compromise that. But there are some other issues in Scripture that it would be foolish to go to the stake for, because the Scriptures are not that explicit and that clear. Now, there are not too many issues in eschatology that I would uh, want to go to the stake for. In other words, in fact, I can accept another believer that is not premillennial. In fact, I have many friends that are not in this area of eschatology. It's not that clear. And there's other issues as well in other areas. But when it comes to salvation by grace through faith and faith alone, that's one that you know is clear enough. I think uh, God has made it clear that uh, we can be very conclusive. So in passages, on the practical level, personally what I do in teaching passages that I've exegeted, I'll just admit, I'll I'll say uh, there's three different views here, and you know I favor this one, and I give the reasons why I favor that one, but if there's enough duity there, I I say to the audience that uh, you know if you think that this one is a better viewpoint, then all I would ask is just be able to defend that viewpoint, and that doesn't make you a heretic, or I ask you not to view me as a heretic if you take an opposing viewpoint. But if you're going to dispute the doctrine of the Trinity, then that's an issue where we need to, or the, the deity of Christ, or these issues that uh, we talk about salvation by faith, by grace through faith, uh, those are issues that I think we, uh, we want to divide. So keep in mind that there are some areas where Scripture is not clear. Uh, We might say there's a Christological principle. This is the last on the list. Now, these are not all of the principles, but these are the most important ones. The last one on the list that I've got is number 15, the Christological principle. We get this from Christ himself. 
interpret with Christ as central to all Scripture. Now, in terms of the Old Testament, the Old Testament anticipates Messiah, anticipates Christ, but it ultimately points to Him. It ultimately looks to Him. And then certainly all of the New Testament is centered around Him. The Gospels obviously are focused on His life and His death and His resurrection. The book of Acts and Acts gives us a record of how the disciples interpreted his life in uh, developing and founding the church and how the church flourished and developed around the death and resurrection of Christ. Then the letters explain theologically the meaning of Christ's life. And the book of Revelation could be considered a fifth gospel because it uh, puts together a different perspective of Christ the resurrected Christ. But all of the Bible is centered in Christ. Where do we get this? Well, turn to Luke 24. All Scripture somehow relates to Christ. And notice what Christ does with the Old Testament at the end of Luke. Now, the context, if you remember, Christ appears to the Emmaus travelers and they don't realize it immediately, but once they sit down at a meal and he breaks the bread, then something clicks, or he manifests himself a little bit more clearly, such they realize that he is the Christ that was crucified just hours earlier, and 25 through 44. 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What he's basically saying, the whole Old Testament is about me. And then in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. This is before the New Testament was written. So he opened their minds that they might understand the Old Testament, the writings of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, because they all, he says, uh, must be fulfilled, all things written about me. There's the Christological principle. So somehow, all Scripture is related to him. So those are our 15 principles, linguistic, contextual, historical, cultural, metaphorical, and then logical, supernatural, clarity of Scripture, Progress of Revelation, Unity of Scripture, number 11, Analogy of Scripture, Didactic, Finite, and finally, the Christological Principle. Any questions on any of those? Or anything we've talked about this afternoon? Well, that is first part of general hermeneutics. These are the principles that will be applicable to any portion of Scripture anywhere, Genesis through Revelation. We will come back to hermeneutics at the end of our class and we will look at the history of hermeneutics. We will look at different hermeneutical systems. What I presented to you is the grammatical, historical, contextual system or method of interpretation. We will look at other approaches so that you be aware and that you might be able to separate why we differ in interpreting from somebody else. It may be because they're using a different hermeneutic. Or it may be as a result of them 
being inconsistent in a hermeneutic, or it may be that they're not familiar with hermeneutics and they're violating hermeneutical principles. Those would be the sources of your differences in interpretation. Theoretically, if we utilize the same principles and we go through the same exegetical process, theoretically we should come to the same conclusions concerning the meaning of a passage. That's the purpose of hermeneutics, is to guide us into the proper interpretation. So if we are using the same hermeneutical principles, we should come to the same conclusions in general, allowing for that uh, finite principle, allowing for some ambiguity, some mystery, some lack of total clarity. There is a clarity of Scripture, but within certain limits and certain bounds. Any questions on anything that we talked about? So let me just uh, briefly give you a heads up. Next week, we will begin the exegetical process. And I think I've given you enough hermeneutics that we can get, jump right in. We will review all of these principles. Well, I don't know all of them, but we will review these principles as they occur, as they come up. And I'll remind you of them. But now we will look at these from a more practical view. What we've done up to now is given you the principles or laid out, you might say, the theory so that you understand what the principles are and and now what we want to do is apply them and utilize them. And like I said, we'll spend most of our time with the linguistic principle because we'll be dealing with the actual words on the page. Now next week, I'll give you an introduction to exegesis. And in that introduction, we'll look at some preliminary things that you do initially before you actually get into a specific and particular text itself. And then after that, uh, most of our work will be dealing with a small portion of Scripture. How do you handle a small portion of Scripture and how do you interpret it? And then from there, you can continue sequentially in exegeting passages. So that's what we'll do for the next several weeks. And next week, uh, I'll give you that introduction.